today we cover just one verse. The reason for covering one verse has to do with the flow of James' thought. Listen to what Matthew Henry said about this section of James. He said, This epistle now drawing to a close, the penman goes off on very goes off very quickly from one thing to another. Hence it is that matters so very different are insisted on in these few verses. That's very well stated. James in his final verses moved quickly from topic to topic. Now, some people have insisted that the topic of swearing here is tied only to the preceding verses about steadfastness in the midst of suffering. They suggest that a person under the weight of suffering is much more likely to go off swearing an oath. There may be some truth to that, but I think James' injunction here against swearing oaths generalizes outside of uh, just suffering. In addition to the texts that you see in the bulletin, please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 23 and put a marker there for a little bit later, Matthew 23. Now James 5:12, but above all my brothers do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Well, the first task this morning is defining what constitutes swearing. Swearing in this context is using an oath to buttress the truth of what I am saying. Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. So in that verse, we don't find uh, the more common English definition of swearing, which is to speak in a vulgar manner, where we might say, oh, he was cussing and swearing up a storm. Now, in any discussion of using oaths or in, in, or in using profanity, we, we need to go to the foundation of using the Lord's name in vain, which Jim read back in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 7.20. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Uh, the subject of swearing oaths is theologically difficult. As I studied, I read an article by Crossway Publishers and uh, called Did Jesus Forbid Taking Oaths? And and I noticed that this article was part of the Tough Passages series. There are some difficult theological questions regarding oaths, but the essence of James' message here and Jesus' message from Matthew 5, it's very simple. It's summed up in 10 words. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. In other words, we're to be so honest that no one would ever hesitate to believe that we're truthful. No one would ever doubt that we'll follow through on what we say. Now let's go to the foundational verse for this word from James in the the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The Ten Commandments were given to the children of Israel after they were rescued from Egypt. And the Ten Commandments were 
or they are guidelines for the conduct of the Lord's people, and they're a revelation of the character of God. Uh, since the people had just left Egypt, the Ten Commandments effectively contrasted God's holy will for his people with the conduct of the people that they had observed in the pagan culture back in Egypt. Now, the Egyptian worshipers, they spoke about their gods in one manner, but Jehovah God has a different standard for the use of his name. Egyptian deities were lesser gods, perhaps. Perhaps we might say they're silly gods. Careless words about a silly God is one thing. Careless words about the one omnipotent, holy creator God is another thing altogether. Creator God is not to be compared to the lesser gods. He is to be feared and revered far above all. And that means his name and any reference to him should be reverent. It should be awe-filled. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Hebrew word for vanity means useless, lying, guile-filled, or morally empty. The name of the Lord was to be associated with reverence, awe, beauty, purity, and glory. Now, the name of the Lord can be used in a morally empty, empty manner in at least two ways. One, as a curse word, which you're familiar with in this culture, and secondly, in a way that reduces God's character to the level of my character when I invoke his holy name into cheap promises. In other words, when I swear an oath in God's name, I draw God into my potentially unholy behavior. I swear by God that I'll have it done tomorrow. I've used his name in vain because I'm completely incapable of being holy like God, invoking God into my business dealings or swearing by God to buttress the truth of my words subjects the holy name of God to the failures of my wretched life. Now, in James 5.12, we primarily see the vain use of God's name in the second sense, the swearing of oaths. But since we're in Exodus 27, we, uh, verse 7, we can talk briefly about the other misuse of God's name, and that is the use of the Lord's name in profanity. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that when people want to use God's name in vain, you don't hear people swearing by Buddha, do you, or Muhammad? The name of Jesus is used in vain all the time. Jesus Christ this, Jesus that. Never Buddha, Buddha Christ, or Muhammad. When somebody hits their finger with a hammer, that's something that you've never heard. It's interesting to speculate why, but it's really not possible to use a lesser God's name in vain, really. Uh, Buddha was a person, Muhammad was a person, frail, like you and I are, and since their names were not, their names were never high and holy to begin with, it's hard to drag down their names too much. But Jesus, the Holy Son of God, uh, it makes sense in a perverse kind of a way. 
that when I'm really angry that I want to slander the most holy thing I know of in order to emphasize how horribly put upon I am makes a perverse kind of sense that I would slander the most holy name that I can think of. There are, I have to confess, rare times when I get a, a sudden surge of anger. Usually for me it happens after an injury. My hand slips off a wrench, or the wrench slips off the socket, wham, you know, into a piece of metal. And there's an instantaneous thought of the Lord's name coming to my mind. I don't say it, but there's a flash of impulse. And then I ask forgiveness for having that impulse, because bringing God's holy name into my rage is, is really... really the definition of profaning God's name. Now think about this irony. The perfect loving God created a paradise for Adam and Eve's benefit. A profane and evil being came and deceived the man and the woman into disobeying God, which resulted in great pain, huge misery, extensive adversity, and death. But when people experience pain, misery, and adversity, they curse and blame God. But seldom do they blame or curse the devil. Friends, we should never use God's name in a curse. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Psalm 34.1. Now, a few words about minced odes. There's a definition of a minced oath according to Wikipedia. A type of euphemism based on a profanity or blasphemy that has been altered to remove the objectionable characteristics of the original ex- expression. In other words, a polite expletive. We're talking about words like golly, gosh, gee, heck, darn it, and the like. That's, that's a minced oath. Now, this is the first time in 12 years that I've talked about this, and I probably won't talk about it again for a very long time, so pay attention today. It was my mother that held the line against this kind of swear words, which we heard from various friends and cousins and thought them pretty clever, I would have to say. But they weren't to be used in our home. Golly, can't say that. It's an alteration for God. Gosh, can't say that. It's also an alteration for God. Gee, you can't say that. It's contracted form of Jesus. Well, it turns out that Francis was right. Linguists trace gosh and golly as replacements for God. Gosh first appearing around 1750. Golly first used around 1840. And gee as a contracted form of Jesus first used around 1890. But my mom did lose a little credibility because she had a way of con- connecting every kind of interjection to, to, to something that, uh, you know, shouldn't be said because it was somehow connected to the sacred. You know, ho- holy buckets. Well, I can't say that. Only God is holy. So I shortened it to buckets. 
Oh, you can't say that because I know you thought holy before you said buckets. Well, good grief. You can't. Good grief. Bible says only God's good. You can't, you know, can't say, can't say that. We're good night, you know. The only exception, it seemed, was her own favorite when, when she got really frustrated. She says, ah, shucks. <laughs> and then we used to say, Mom, you shouldn't talk like that. <laughs> well... What should we make of all of that in real life? I found it interesting what was said by a linguist from West Virginia University, not a believer at all. What he said about minstos. What unites all these expressions is a desire to find acceptable versions of profane or blasphemous words. God becomes gosh, hell becomes heck. Damnation becomes tarnation. They are an indirect expression substituted to soften the harsher blow of the profane. Is it God-honoring to use acceptable versions of profane and blasphemous words? You think about that and decide. Decide for yourself. Because, you know, I'm not going to give you guidelines on, on what interjections are okay and which are not. I won't because the Bible doesn't. But the Bible does say, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So I leave it to you and to Scripture and to the Holy Spirit to determine if minced oaths honor God. But not necessarily to your conscience. Because your conscience, even though it's helpful, it's not trustworthy. Those people will say, well, you know, I don't know where that word came from, but I don't mean it in a bad way. In other words, the innocence of my intent makes it okay. Did you know that the innocence of your intent means very little in determining sin? The innocence of my intent is not the standard. The standard is the glory and the holiness of God. And I'm afraid that we frequently sin quite innocently. The Bible dedicates two chapters to this phenomenon. I'm going to show you just a couple of verses from Leviticus 5, 17 to 19. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes it. I've stopped there for a second. So when I, when I first read this, you know, I thought the verse was going to say something like uh, God was going to respond in a way like, oh, you didn't know about it? Okay, it's, it's cool. You know, it's cool then. That's not what it says at all. Pick up at the end of line four there. Then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally. Then he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. So very, very much of our natural behavior is sinful, though we have no intention of dishonoring God. Never assume that what comes natural is righteous. 
It's not. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So the unintentional, innocent sin is forgiven after atonement and after the sinner acknowledges his guilt. So wherever you come out on the matter of minced oaths, don't say something like, wow, I didn't mean any offense by it, or well, it just kind of comes naturally. You know, it's always what we've done. It's, it's what we've always done. All right, on to the second way the Lord's name can be used in vain, or at least the second one we list. There may be others. This is the primary meaning in James 5, verse 12, taking the Lord's name in vain and oaths. Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. All right, let's deal with the first three words. But above all, those are kind of stark words, aren't they? Does James really mean to prioritize transgressions? You know, that, that's what it sounds like. You know, my brothers, there's slander, and there's adultery, you know, there's murder, but my brother's way up there, you know. In the horrible echelons of evil and wickedness, there's taking an oath. I doubt if that's what James was saying. Some scholars uh, have attempted to explain why James might have set oaths apart as a particularly egregious kind of sin. None of them I found satisfactory. I doubt if you would either. We won't get into those explanations. But here are three things that, that I think could reasonably explain the words of James above all. One, James could have meant that in the context of unfair treatment and suffering. In other words, verses 1 through 11. Make sure that you as a believer don't get so frustrated that you blow your top off and start taking oaths. All right? Now, once you've avoided that error, then we can deal with helping you get through the suffering and the hard times, but, you know, don't blow it right up front by, you know, going into oaths. All right, second thing he could have meant. He could have meant that it's of first importance because he heard these oaths daily. It was a cultural thing, a commonplace and tiresome problem for James. In our culture, Actual oaths are not that common, though I know some people that interject oaths in, in everything they sway, say. Oh, I swear by God, that little dog caught that big boxer in three seconds, and sure as hell, he chased it off, and it's never come back, you know. Now, if James heard that from every Christian, he couldn't be blamed for saying, above all, brothers third thing James could have meant. He could have been using a figure of speech to grab attention, but not one that measured and graded sins. In this case, above all, it would mean something along the lines of, listen up, brothers, you know, hear me out on this. Well, that much and no more on the words, but above all. 
Oh, defining an oath. The Oxford Dictionary defines an oath this way. A solemn promise often invo- invoking a divine witness regarding one's future action or behavior. That's what we're talking about in James 5 and in Matthew 5. An oath occurs when I bring a greater power to the table as my witness. Now, this definition of oath is biblical. We see it referenced in Hebrews 6.13 through 16. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless and multiply you. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God was about to confirm his promise to Abraham, he apparently would have used uh, an oath, but it was impossible for God to bring any greater power or authority to the table. There is no one greater by whom he can swear, so he swore by himself. And this is the idea of swearing in a court or in a confirmation process for a politician, for example, where at least in the past, you put your left hand on the Bible and you swore to be truthful, etc., etc. Not sure how much that occurs anymore because we're post-Christian culture and courts are post-Christian as well. But this is what was meant by swearing on the Bible. The Bible, of course, invoking the name and authority of God. Now, I said earlier the matter of oath-taking is theologically difficult, but reading today's passages, you know, it doesn't seem difficult. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Or the Matthew 5 passage. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, you would come away from that saying, well, there's nothing difficult about that. The Bible says you must not use an oath. Okay, well, here are some things to consider on the other side of the argument. First, oaths were permitted and seemingly commonplace in the Old Testament, for example, in Numbers 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. The rest of Numbers chapter 30 is given to instructions on correctly using oaths. Oaths are never condemned or spoken of as evil or questionable. Second, we need to consider that God used oaths, many oaths, in the Bible, as seen previously reading in Hebrews, uh, in that Hebrews section. Thirdly, consider that we use some oaths, for example, in many of our wedding ceremonies. You know, if they include anything like before God and these other witnesses, uh, or, or even saying we meet in the presence of God today in the holy matrimony of so-and-so. You brought God in on, you know, as, as a witness. Are we going to throw those out? Fourthly, Bible characters used those, including Samuel. 
1 Samuel 12, 3 through 5. Here I am, said Samuel, testify me uh, against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or, or whom have I defrauded, etc., etc. And the people answered, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hands. And they said, He is witness. And the most difficult of all, for someone who wants to say that all those are wrong, is the fact that the Apostle Paul, in the New Testament, various times, chronologically after Jesus' instructions in Matthew, and chronologically after James' instructions in the book of James, uses those. One example, 2 Corinthians 1.23. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. So if it was the intent of Jesus that we never use an oath, why then did the Holy Spirit, who inspired the writing of Paul, inspire Paul to write that he used God's name in an oath? So I want to make five observations about the use of oaths. The first, oaths on their own are not evil. God used them. Paul used them. The Old Testament allowed them. So we have to acknowledge that bringing in a higher power as a witness in an oath, it's not inherently wrong. Oaths were meant to restrain the deceitfulness of the tongue. The purpose of oaths in the Old Testament was to bolster the ninth commandment, Exodus 20:16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, since the fall of Adam and Eve, humanity has been prone to lying and prone to deceit. Making an agreement by an oath or by a contract or by a promise and then reneging on that agreement is a violation of you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. An oath was meant to restrain false assertions and promises. Oaths and promises and contracts all have the same goal to induce people to keep their word. They're especially useful when people are tempted to renege on their promise. There are many, many oaths are recorded in the Bible. I found a list that had 54. I don't think that was nearly comprehensive. One of which was Rahab and the two spies. And Rahab said, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. Joshua 2.12 the two, two spies at this point were at Rahab's mercy. She could have screamed out, eh, spies! But she was willing to spare the spies, but she wanted her life and the life of her family spared. But, but could these men be trusted? Because it's possible they could get back to their camp and forget all about Rahab and her family. And she would die in the invasion 
of the city. Hmm. Better get a promise. Better get a promise that includes the integrity of the God of Israel. That'll make sure they don't forget me, Rahab reasoned. Why? Because O's promises and contracts are all conventions to restrain and limit false promises. God uses many conventions to restrain the evil that's, that's within us. One of, the, one of them is government. You know, government restrains us from assaulting others and other crimes because we don't want to go to jail. You know, discipline. His discipline. God disciplines every child he loves. Discipline is a convention to drive the folly out of out of a person and, and, and restrain the evil that's within. So oaths had their purpose, but oaths were not working for the purpose that they were originally for. Maybe they did in the Old Testament days. But in the New Testament time, the scribes and the Pharisees had all kinds of shifty regulations about oaths. Uh, Jesus referred to this in Matthew 23, and this is where you have your Bible open, Matthew 23, 16. We're going to read about six or seven verses, Matthew 23, 16. Jesus said, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that is made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath, you blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. See, the scribes and Pharisees thought they had found an acceptable acceptable way to break oaths. You can imagine some guy complaining to a Pharisee, hey, you swore by the temple that you'd pay me two goats by Friday. Well, yeah, sure, Jonas. I, but you notice I didn't swear by the gold on the temple. I just swore by the temple. So, ha ha, you know. You just be just be glad you got one goat. In other words, the oaths that religious people used were now not used to restrain deceit, but to beguile innocent victims into their deceit. It was the moral of equivalent of, of the old schoolhouse con. You know, hey, let me borrow that for a minute. I'll give it back to you. I promise, I promise I'll give it back to you. Ha-ha, I had my fingers crossed behind my back. and I don't have to give it back. Yeah. I think Jesus would have hated that little ruse. Because I, I know I hated it anyway. Jesus, therefore, delegitimized all oaths in that context. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5. This one's in your bulletin. 
Again, you have heard that it was said of, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, I suggest if the Jewish people had done just what was said of old, Jesus probably wouldn't have gone on uh, to verse 34, but he did go on to verse 34. I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The whole matter of oaths was so corrupted that the intent to to promote honesty was now flipped completely upside down, and the intent was to deceive people. So Jesus said, just cut it out. So then letter E is basically back to letter A. Some oaths used in the right way seem to be acceptable. Like the oaths that Paul used. Or maybe like the oaths we use in weddings. At least that's my interpretation. If you have a different interpretation, we will still be friends. Um, The Anabaptist interpretation was that no oath was ever taken. That's how I was taught. And when I went into court... And the judge said, you know, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God? And, and, I, and I said, I do so affirm. Other religious groups have different guidelines on this, which we won't go into. They're, they're not, honestly, they're not terribly important to me for two reasons. One, we're not really a society that leans on formal oaths that much at this time. And two, the main thrust of James and of Jesus is not getting oaths right. The main thrust is that we are to have integrity. Integrity. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's what James insisted on. That's what Jesus insisted on. You do not need an oath when your word is good. When the person you're dealing with, they don't need an oath from you when they know you're good for your word. And and you don't need an oath to help rein in your your tendency to deceive. Not when your pattern is always mean yes and always mean no. If we could succeed at that, we'd not... We'd not need contracts and, and deposits and securities and guarantees and the likes. I had, to, I had to purchase professional insurance this past week or past two weeks. They wanted me to review and sign the contract. Contract had nine articles, 43 single spaced pages. And I said to myself, there's no way I'm going to spend an afternoon reading this stuff. Why does it require 43 pages of regulations to purchase professional insurance? Because of the corrupt nature of humanity, the deceit of the human heart that will attempt to circumvent laws and take advantage of others for its own benefit. If everyone had integrity, there'd be no 43-page contracts to sign. So let me ask you, 11 questions about integrity. Have you ever made a promise to a child that you didn't follow through on? 
too have you ever shaded the truth to or hidden something from a parent who had a reasonable right to know three have you ever shaded the truth to or hidden something from a spouse who had a reasonable right to know four have you ever failed in principle or in practice to completely fulfill any marriage vow made to your spouse? Five, have you ever answered, I'll think about it, or sure, I'd like to do that, or something similar, for the primary purpose of ending the conversation? Six, have you ever failed to pay the government any taxes or fees which the government would have assumed you owed them? Seven. Have you ever failed to complete a task on a timely basis as promised or implied to an employer or supervisor? Eight. Have you ever told a white lie in words or by other communication in order to cover up something you did, you wanted to keep hidden. Nine, have you ever made a promise to God that you did not fully keep? A promise about prayer, a promise about Bible reading, a promise about tithing. Ten, have you ever passed on information about someone which you were not sure was completely accurate or which may have been biased or unbalanced, which would have been better left unsaid or unwritten? And 11, does anyone in your life, God, a family member, coworkers, friends, have any reason to doubt that your simple words, yes, or no will be 100% accurate and honest. You see, at what point do I get tired of saying yes, 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 yes? We have, I think, a long way to go in the matter of integrity. A simple yes should suffice for your spouse, for your child, for your coworker, for your friend, and after hearing yes, they should walk away completely in confidence that you were honest and you'll come through with what you said. But I don't think it is that way for most of us. But, you know, in, in one way, in one way, that's okay. As I was reading, uh, reading the, the, the words that we sang this morning, Rock of Ages it's not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? These for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Of course, you lack integrity, but you have the blood of Jesus to cover it. That's your only hope. It only ever was the only hope that you ever had. But you have to come to him confess it and ask for his help now for the last phrase so that you may not fall under condemnation well what condemnation and whose 
the, the condemnation referred to here, I think, is the, is the ninth commandment. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. So if you're in the habit of throwing around oaths to back up your word, or in our context, promises more so, sooner or later you're going to break a promise or an oath, and then, you, then you'll be under the condemnation of the people that you bore false witness to, and under the condemnation of God who wrote the ninth commandment. Now, this is especially true because one of the reasons that we make promises is because we find it necessary to bolster the believability of our word. I can remember one of my children saying, Dad, you know, can you play this game with me? Oh, sure, just as soon as I finish this. Dad, do you promise? I'm already in trouble at that point. Because that child has observed already that my word is not always that trustworthy. I better get a promise from him. But then, you know, at that point, I'm tempted to start piling up promises. Oh, yeah, I promise. I just have to finish this page. I'll be right with you. Don't worry about it. You know, it was, it was my lack of integrity that made the promise necessary. And, and you know, then that promise, you know, using unwritten authority, I didn't swear by God's name, but when you, when you make a promise, you're, you're swearing by your own word. Formal oath would have stated the authority being invoked. You know, I swear by God, but in making a promise, essentially I'm saying, I swear by myself. That's exactly what Jesus was saying. It doesn't matter who you swear by, by God, by the earth, by the hair on your head. It doesn't matter. They all trace back to God. You make a promise, it's traceable back to God. When my word is weak enough that it has to be bolstered with promises, I'm on the doorstep of condemnation. Not eternal condemnation is in losing salvation. A Christian doesn't lose salvation over a violation of the ninth commandment, but they fall under the condemnation of the people they're supposed to be witnessing to, and they fall under the discipline of God for the purpose of correcting that Christian's lack of integrity. So how strongly trusted is your yes and your no? Do people trust your simple answer? Does God trust your simple answer? As application for a Christian walking in the spirit, oaths and promises and contracts should be unnecessary. Now, of course, in business dealings, some of the, they're going to be required sometimes, but in your personal life, you shouldn't have to make promises to get, get people to believe you. You shouldn't need to make a promise in, in order to cajole yourself to keep the word that you've given. Let it never be said that living as a Christian is easy. Living living as a Christian is much harder than living a secular life. If anyone's goal is 
to live the easy life. They will always drift away from the Bible. They'll always drift away from God. They'll always drift away from churches that insist on the Bible. But I trust, I trust that you have the Holy Spirit to help you live out that which is impossible to do in the strength of your own will or your own, your own flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your holy word, and we ask, Father, that you would continue to work with us on our honesty and integrity. Watch over us today as we continue to worship uh, this morning and sing. Father, we, we pray these things in order that your holy name be, may be honored. In the name of Jesus, amen.